bearing with us and for reading the scripture for us. Um, It is our joy and privilege to be in the book of Jonah this morning. Um, I have been so incredibly blessed, uh, challenged, convicted, and um, changed by my study of this book. I, I feel like God is pursuing me. I feel like God is speaking directly to my heart, and I trust that God will speak directly to your hearts as well as we open up his word together uh, this morning. Um, This is a book about God's grace. We learned last week that that God is a God of relentless grace, that he pursues pagan unbelievers like Ninevites. He pursues the worst of sinners, those who... uh, in religious circles would seem to be out of the reach of God's grace, that he in his love and sovereign mercy pursues the worst of sinners. And we also saw that God not only pursues pagan unbelievers, but he pursues runaway believers as well. He pursues rebellious believers like Jonah. And we saw last week that Jonah was really a mirror for our souls, that we are Jonah. This is our hearts. We are, as we sung, prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We, we are prone to leave the God we love, and we wake up every morning with the bent that we want to run from God. We want our own way. We want our own will. We want our own agenda. And this is the posture of our own hearts Every day is we run from God, and yet God in his relentless grace pursues us in love. He finds us, and he brings us to himself. This is a story about sin and grace. And so as we saw last week, to go deeper into the story of Jonah is to be taken deeper into the heart of the gospel of Jesus. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the message of sin and grace. Now this morning we come to Jonah chapter 2 and we come to the prayer of Jonah. The prayer of Jonah spoken from the belly of the fish. Chapter 1 verse 17 says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. This is the prayer of Jonah. Now, there are many prayers in the Old Testament in which the believer cries out to God in a time of great trouble and distress. And these are some of my favorite prayers in the Old Testament because they're just so raw. They're so honest. There's no religious jargon. There's no posturing. There's no trying to impress people with how lofty the prayer is. There's just the heart cry of a believer in a time of trouble who cries out to his God, God, you have to meet me here and you have to help me. David said in Psalm 18:6, in my distress, I called to the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. We can think of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 who was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. 
Jeremiah prayed in Lamentations chapter 3, my eyes will flow without ceasing until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. These are some of the most honest, the most sincere, the most heart-wrenching prayers in all the Bible, and they're they're encouragements for us that God will meet us in our time of distress if we call out to him as our Heavenly Father. That no matter where we are, or no matter how deep our trouble, no matter how deep our distress, if we, we can cry to the Lord and he will meet us there in our time of sorrow. And there are numerous prayers in the Old Testament where the, the believer cries out to his God, in a heartfelt way. And these are great encouragements for our own hearts. But among all those prayers in the Old Testament, this has to be among the most dramatic. Because here we have a prayer of distress, a prayer of trouble, a cry to God that comes not metaphorically from the depths of despair, but literally Jonah is in the depths of darkness. He is in the belly of the great fish. John Calvin said this, It is certain that no one of us can comprehend, much less convey in words, what must have come into the mind of Jonah during these three days in the belly of the fish. He must have suffered a continual execution. He would have languished in continual torments and constantly boiled with grief, he would conclude that God, instead of killing him at once, had decided to expose him to innumerable deaths. And the best way that I could describe the three days and three nights that Jonah spent in the belly of the fish would be in the words, it was a living death. It was a living death. I mean, the closest I could come to to compare it to in our, our context would be to be buried alive. I mean, imagine being buried alive for three days and three nights. And yet that doesn't even come close to the suffering that Jonah experienced in the belly of the fish. We don't know what type of fish this was. Some say it was a whale. Others say it was a kind of a giant shark. Uh, The Hebrew term is inconclusive. It just refers to a big, giant fish. But we do know that Jonah must have suffered tremendously in that place. He would have experienced claustrophobia. The fish's stomach would have constricted around its contents, leaving very little room to move. It would have been difficult for Jonah to breathe. His nostrils would have been filled with the vile scent of digestive juices and the rotting remains of whatever the fish had eaten the day before. He would have lacked any access to food or to fresh water. It would have been a place of total darkness. Maybe worse than that, Jonah would have had a complete lack of sense of which way was up and which way was down, and he would have experienced nausea and seasickness as the fish moved back and forth into the deep of the water. His skin would have been irritated by the gastric juices of the fish. If the fish was, were cold-blooded, then Jonah would have been uncomfortably cold. If the fish were warm-blooded, he would have been uncomfortably hot. 
time would have passed with excruciating slowness. Jonah would have been absolutely alone with only his thoughts and his guilty conscience to keep him company. And his skin would be, would be irritated and raw. His eyes would have to be closed shut because of the acids in the belly. Hours would have turned to days with no word of rescue and no guarantee of escape. I mean, we look at this and we know that he came out after three days and three nights. When Jonah was there, there was no way he could know if he'd ever get out of there. And Jonah in the belly of the fish would have been overwhelmed with a complete sense of hopelessness. I mean, what can you do? Even if Jonah were to somehow fight his way out of the belly of the fish, he'd be at the bottom of the ocean and he'd drown. This is a believer who is literally in the depths, literally in the place of total darkness. And yet the irony is, brothers and sisters, that Jonah was never so near his God as he was in the belly of the fish. It was there in that living prison that Jonah encountered the living God. And the place where he experienced the greatest suffering and the greatest despair was also the place where God changed his heart. If you survey the book of Jonah, you'll find that in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah's on a boat, sailing merrily on his way to Tarshish, and there he is fleeing from the presence of God. You'll see in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah is on land, and there he is complaining against the grace of God. It is here in Jonah chapter 2, when Jonah is in the place of greatest suffering, greatest trial, greatest distress, that Jonah meets with God. And isn't that true for our lives as well? Isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that we are closest to God in our times of distress? Isn't it true that God does the sweetest work of grace in our lives in the days of our greatest trouble? Isn't it true that as you look back on your Christian life, that the periods in which you grew the most, the periods where God broke through to your heart, the periods that you saw the greatest spiritual change and that you felt the presence of God the most dear were also the seasons of greatest suffering? Isn't it true that we are never closer to God than in our times of distress? Because in our times of distress, our our self-reliance is stripped away. We have nothing to rely on except for God. And we cry out to Him in our time of trouble and He graciously and faithfully meets us there. And that was the experience of Jonah. In the belly of the fish, God met Jonah. And what God does in the belly of this fish is something so amazing. It is something so beautiful it is something so, something to be cherished so greatly because God doesn't just break Jonah's will. You know, I thought this book was about God had to just break him. You know, he's a stubborn guy and God just has to smash him and pound him and just bring him to submission. And that's really what the storm and the fish are all about. But it's more than that. 
in the, the belly of the fish, God not only breaks Jonah, he not only humbles Jonah, he not only breaks his rebellion, but catch this, God gives to Jonah a beautiful understanding of God's grace. He breaks through to Jonah's legalistic heart and he teaches him his grace in such a way that his heart is transformed and now he's ready to go preach to the worst of sinners. It's no accident that this prayer ends with the climactic statement in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. At the end of it all, when Jonah went through the storm, when he went through the depths, and when he went into the belly of the fish, at the end of it all, what he came up with was this great pearl. My God is a God who saves. My God is a savior. And his heart is to reach out in mercy and in grace. You see, what happened in the belly of the fish is Jonah came to an understanding of grace that he had not had before. Before the fish, Jonah knew God's grace in his head. He could quote the Bible verses that talked about God's grace. But you see in his heart, his heart was filled with legalism and pride and self-righteousness. He refused to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to have anything to do with compassion on sinners. The operative principle in Jonah's heart was legalism and pride. But Jonah could quote the verses. I mean, he knew the scriptures that talked about God's grace. In Jonah 4.2, Jonah says to God, I, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Uh, he paraphrases Exodus 34.6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If we were to give Jonah a quiz on the grace of God, he could quote the verses. He knew the scriptures. He could cite the references. But the greatest distance in the world is the distance between our heads and our hearts. And Jonah had the grace of God in his head, but he didn't have it in his heart. And it is in the belly of the fish that God's grace breaks through to Jonah. And now he is ready to preach to Nineveh. I can remember uh, one time volunteering at a children's ministry on Skid Row in downtown LA. And just to be honest here, the kids were out of control. They were... It was all we could do to just get 15 minutes of their attention and then the rest of the time they were melting down. And I remember coming away comparing those kids to kids that I had known in the church, kids who were better behaved, kids who listened better, who had longer attention spans, and thinking, man, I don't know if the grace of God can reach these kids. The children I know are are more likely to receive the grace of God than the children in this ministry. 
And when I look back on that, I feel so convicted and so ashamed because that, that was the spirit of Jonah in my heart. That I look at certain people and I feel they're beyond the reach of God's grace. That people who are more like me or people that I'm more comfortable with, they're more reachable with God's grace. And my heart has completely forgotten that God's grace is completely unmerited. That no one is more worthy of God's grace than anyone else. And that's the spirit of Jonah in our hearts. And when we feel that way, it means that what is in our heads, the grace of God, needs to travel down to our hearts so that the grace of God not only is something that we cite and we tell people about, but it, it changes our attitudes and it changes how we view people and changes how we view the world. And this is the work that God does in Jonah's heart in the belly of the fish. This is the greater miracle in Jonah chapter 2. The greater miracle is not that God rescued Jonah from drowning through a great fish. The greater miracle is not that God kept Jonah alive for three days and three nights. The greater miracle is the miracle of Jonah's changed heart. That what was once a legalistic heart is now a heart that understands grace, that proclaims salvation belongs to the Lord. Now what we're going to see as we go along next week, we're going to see that Jonah's heart is going to need winning again. He's going to forget the lessons that he learned in the belly of the fish. He's going to go back to his legalism. And that's what our hearts are like as well, isn't it? We, we, under, we get to understand God's grace and then we go back to our legalism. We, we, we come back to grace and we come back to legalism. We need to be won time and time again by the wonders of God's grace. But for now we see Jonah here in a place where God's grace finally breaks through to his heart and transforms his life. Now let's see how God's grace does this. We'll see this prayer in, in, in two uh, stages. First, we'll look at God's provision of rescue, and second, we'll look at Jonah's prayer. First, let's see God's provision, picking up the story from chapter 1, verse 11. Then the sailor said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And verse 15 says, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And verse 17 says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is how I used to picture it. I used to picture it that that the sailors took Jonah and cast him overboard. And there waiting with his mouth wide open was the fish. And so it was like playing catch. You know, you throw the ball and then the, it goes right into the mitt. They just cast him over and the, the fish was there and, and, and took Jonah into his belly. But as we look at the prayer of Jonah, we see that this is not the case. What actually happened is that Jonah spent much time 
drowning in the depths of the ocean and was actually half drowned by the time the fish came to pick him up. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, describing the experience of drowning, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Verse 5, he says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. And the text actually describes Jonah falling not into the only into the depths of the sea, but actually to the very bottom of the sea. He says in verse 5 that weeds were wrapped around my head. This would describe the grass, that the seagrass that grew at the bottom of the ocean. And he says they were at the roots of the mountains. The Hebrew term literally refers to the ocean floor. Jonah sank to the very bottom. And he says in verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He, at the bottom of the ocean floor, he recounts looking up to the land of the living and he describes the vast waves and water that separated him from the sun as bars, as barriers that kept him from the land of life. And he says, my life was fainting away, verse 7. And the picture here is not that they cast Jonah overboard and the fish swallowed him up immediately, but that Jonah spent much time struggling and thrashing around in the ocean and fighting for his breath and sinking to the very bottom. And just in the nick of time, when Jonah's life was about to expire, verse 17 says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow him up and rescue him. Jonah was literally brought to the very end of himself. He was brought to the point where he literally despaired of life, where it was over for him, and there was no hope of rescue. And God provided the fish for time of rescue. I would have thought that if God were a God of grace, then maybe he'd come a little sooner. Maybe he'd send another ship to come and rescue Jonah. Maybe he'd send some big guy who jumped overboard and swam to the bottom and, and pulled Jonah up to a place of safety. But God sends the fish just in the nick of time. And he has Jonah spend three days and three nights in the belly of the fish because he still has lessons he wants to teach Jonah's heart. And so we move from God's provision to Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, verse 1. Jonah says, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of the shield I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. 
When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You'll note that most of this prayer, Jonah is recounting his experience of drowning, and he's remembering how God plucked his life and rescued him just as his life was about to expire. There there are two deliverances in Jonah chapter 2. The first deliverance, God rescues Jonah from drowning in the belly of the fish. The second deliverance, God rescues him from the belly of the fish and spits him out into dry land. This prayer is spoken in the middle of those two deliverances. Jonah's been delivered from drowning, but he has not yet been delivered from the belly of the fish. Yet what is absolutely remarkable about this prayer, what is absolutely stunning about this prayer, what spoke to my heart and convicted me and challenged me and encouraged me at the same time about this prayer is that this prayer is completely a prayer of thanksgiving. It is completely a prayer of praise to God. You'll look in the prayer and you will not find a single request. You will not find a single word of supplication. You will not find Jonah asking God to do anything. He's still in this living death. But all you will find in this prayer is Jonah looking back to the first deliverance and thanking God and praising God and being amazed that God would have mercy on him in saving his life from drowning. My prayer would have gone a lot different. If I were in the belly of the fish, my prayer would have gone like this. Verse 2, God, help me. Verse 3 would have said, God, you got to deliver me. Verse 4 would have said, God, get me out of here. Verse 5, God, you got to rescue me. I would have spent 10 verses pleading with God, begging God, requesting of God, supplication, intercession, and maybe thrown in a little word of thanksgiving at the beginning. And at the end, thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. I would have spent most of the prayer begging God to do something. Jonah's prayer was entirely a prayer of praise. It is a testimony of how good God has been to him. Jonah focuses completely on the deliverance he has already received and he leaves whatever is in his future into God's hands. And he says, I leave that up to you. I am thankful for the grace you have already given to me. And I give you praise and thanks from the belly of the fish. Verse 9, he says, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I I will pay. And we see in this prayer that, that Jonah sees the sovereignty of God in arranging his 
suffering. Verse 3, he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. He says, All your waves and your billows passed over me. We know from chapter 115 that it was the sailors who threw Jonah into the depths of the sea, but he sees God's sovereign hand in arranging the circumstances of his life, and he says, God, you did this. The sailors were involved, but this was your sovereign hand. This was your sovereign work. You are in control. You placed me here. And Jonah's rebellious heart is broken. He comes to submit his life under the sovereign hand of God. And he praises God for hearing his prayer. Even though he is still in the place of suffering and his circumstances have not changed, verse 1 he says, I called to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Can you imagine just being in a place of complete darkness, complete despair, in such a place of physical suffering and just saying, Lord, this is your sovereign will for my life and I will praise you here. Whether my circumstances change or whether they remain the same, my heart will thank you and my heart will praise you. Brothers and sisters, this this is the greater miracle. This is the greater expression of God's grace. The greater expression of God's grace in our lives is not that God saves us from suffering. The greater expression of God's grace is, is not that God changes our circumstances. The greater expression of God's grace is not that God relieves our trials. No, the greater miracle, the greater work of God, is that even we are, when we are in the trial, even when we are in the depths, even when we are in the time of greatest suffering, God comes and meets us and ministers to us in such a way that our hearts are filled with praise and thanksgiving. And it doesn't matter if the circumstances change or not. That is the greater work of grace. And I just looked at this passage and I was so convicted, so challenged, and so encouraged because I was, I was probably like you. I've been so, so consumed with trying to get God to change my circumstances. To make things better. To, to relieve my problems. To make it go away. To, I've been trying to get God to, God, if, if you love me and if you hear me, then, then make my life different. And this passage was telling me, Dan, God's not so much interested as making your life different. He's interested in making your heart different. His greater work of grace is not going to be in making your problems go away. His greater work of grace is going to be 
and changing your heart so that even in the midst of your problems and trials, you have a heart of joy and a heart of praise. And you can say with Jonah that I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed, I will pay. The greater work of God in this prayer is the testimony of a thankful heart. Sarah Edwards, wife of Jonathan Edwards, responded to her husband's death by saying this. She said, What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands upon our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. When we can go through the seasons of greatest darkness and come out with a heart of praise and thanksgiving, this is the greater work of God's grace in our lives. And so we see Jonah praising God, not after the storm has passed, but while he is in the storm. We see Jonah thanking God that God heard his prayer, thanking God for the grace he has already received, and then just leaving the future in God's hands. Jonah says, I praise you, God, that you are sovereign. I praise you that you are with me. And I leave the rest to you. The prayer culminates in the great statement of verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's really a, a sweeping cry. It's a, it's a heart of exultation. It's, it's a great climax of the prayer that Jonah cries out, Salvation belongs to to the Lord. And some have said this is the theme of the entire Bible, the sovereign grace of God in saving sinners. And it seems to come in this prayer out of nowhere. You're sort of going along in this prayer and Jonah's saying, thank you for saving me. Thank you for, for not drowning me. Thank you for being with me. And then all of a sudden he bursts out in this climactic statement that you are a saving God. And you are sovereign in your grace towards sinners. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And we kind of look at that and say, whoa, where did that come from? I mean, it's kind of like if you were driving along in your car and your car broke down and you were saying, thank you, God, for, for not getting me into a car wreck. And all of a sudden you just burst out, my God is a God of sovereign grace toward all the nations. And it just sort of comes out of nowhere. But if we think more carefully, we see that the connection is very natural and the connection is justified. Because it was in the belly of the fish that Jonah saw that he was a man who needed grace. It was in the belly of the fish that Jonah saw 
that he had to absolutely rely upon God's grace. It was there in the darkness where Jonah had nothing left but to cry out for grace. And when Jonah came to that point in which he trusted in grace and relied in grace and looked to grace and found his only confidence in grace, that is when his heart opened up to see that God is not only a God who shows grace to sinners in their time of distress, but God is a God who shows grace to sinners in saving them from their sin. The smaller grace that Jonah received in the belly of the fish opened his heart to see the greater grace that God shows to sinners in salvation. And what happened as a result is that verse 10 says that the fish vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Chapter 3, verse 5 says, The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Catch the flow here. Jonah was a man who didn't understand grace. What God does in this passage is he gives Jonah grace to open up his heart, to break down his legalistic pride so that his heart would come to an understanding of grace. Because Jonah's heart has now received God's grace, he is now ready to be an agent of grace to those who desperately need it, the worst of sinners, the Ninevites. As Jonah goes to the Ninevites, he ministers God's grace to them and preaching to them judgment and wrath and giving them space to repent. And as a result of all of that, the Ninevites come to receive the grace of God. The whole chain here began with a man who didn't understand grace, receiving grace so that he would be an agent of grace, that God would give grace to others. And if you look at that chain, and if you look at the dimensions of grace that are found in that flow of events, then brothers and sisters, what I would say to you this morning is very simply and very clearly that possibly one of the reasons why God has allowed you to go through trial and suffering and times of darkness is because he wants to prepare your heart to be a more effective missionary. One of the reasons why God may be allowing you to have the trials in your life is because he knows your heart doesn't understand grace. And if your heart is to understand grace, you need to be put in a position where you have nothing to rely on except God's grace. That the smaller grace you receive in 
God meeting you in that trial would open up your heart to the greater grace that God gives to sinners in salvation. And the end of that result isn't just that he wants to work on your character. It isn't just that he wants to mature you and to make you more like Christ. That's a part of it. But one of the greater purposes in God doing that work in our hearts is he wants to prepare our hearts to be agents of grace to those in our world to make us more effective missionaries and messengers of his grace to others because he knows that while there is legalism and self-righteousness and pride in our hearts that we cannot minister to unbelievers because they know, they can smell our self-righteousness. They know that we judge them. They know we think ourselves better than them and so God has to break us and smash us down and show us that we're just like them. We need grace. They need grace. We all come by grace and we come now with humility and with brokenness and with love and tenderness and we don't just blast them with the gospel machine gun until they're, they're dead, but we, we minister and love the message of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God crucified for our sins in love and compassion and patience and our hearts have been prepared to extend God's grace because our hearts have come to receive God's grace ourselves. One of the reasons why God may have allowed the trials and the problems and the difficulties in your life right now is because he's looking at some Ninevites in our society. He's looking at some of the Ninevites in your sphere of influence. And he wants his grace to extend to them. Though they are hardened and though they are pagan and though they hate God, he wants to extend his grace to them. But you're not ready to go. Because for you to be ready to go, grace needs to move the greatest distance in the world from your head to your heart. And so God is putting you in a position where you need his grace, where you have nothing left to rely on, where you have to cry out to him because he wants to open up your heart. And he wants to help you to see that you're just like anyone else. You need grace. Brothers and sisters, if our trials are expressions of God's grace in our lives to teach us of his grace in our hearts, so that we may be more effective messengers for him, so that others who do not know grace would receive his grace. If our trials are ultimately means to, to glorify the cross, to lift up high the name of Jesus Christ, to magnify the work that Christ has done on the cross in extending his amazing grace towards sinners, if our trials are means to lead us so that we would boast 
in Christ and proclaim with all those in heaven that salvation is of the Lord, then can we not with Jonah, even in the pit of our darkness, can we not give to God hearts of praise and say to God, whether it changes or whether it remains the same, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. My encouragement to you this morning is the encouragement I receive from this word. Let's receive the multi-dimensional aspects of God's grace. Let's receive all of it. Even when that grace is expressed in the storm and the darkness and the despair and the trials, let's receive with grateful hearts all of his grace. And when we do, God will receive all the glory for he has been gracious to us. Let's bow our hearts and close our time in prayer. Gracious Father, we cry to you this morning and we ask that you would do a work of grace in our hearts. We confess that we are people who know the verses, but we have not tasted the reality in our hearts of how high and how wide deep and how long your love and grace are in the gospel of your son we confess our self-centeredness we feel that life is all about us when you have greater purposes in mind in your kindness you have afflicted us that you may teach us of your grace and Lord we believe that our church, you have Ninevites in mind that you mean to reach through us. Father, our hearts are not prepared to go. And so work your perfect will in each heart. Show grace upon grace, not only to us, but to our friends, our neighbors, to our communities families. May the result of all of this be that Christ would be magnified and you would be glorified. We pray all this in Christ's precious name.